Hi, I'm Bella Sanger, enthusiastic eater, exhausted parent, founder, and CEO. In this video podcast, I really wanted to talk with a diversity of badass female entrepreneurs and thought leaders getting into what it means to belong in our professions, in our cultures, and our own bodies. As an Indian-born, Canadian-raised American woman who spent years fighting for a seat at the table, I just decided to build my own. So grab a cup of chai and join me. Welcome to Bella's Table. This is Bella's Table. So excited to be here with both of you. Uh, This episode about failure and rejection is something I've been really looking forward to. And since you guys don't know each other, I'm going to introduce you guys because you're both awesome women and we're happy to have you here. So Kim Pham, I've been following you on Instagram. Very excited about what you got going on in the world. You're co-founder of Omsom, a collection of Asian meals, sauces, and seasonings. And you, I've seen them all over the social media world. Keisha Garrison, thank you for joining us. Former Microsofty, I want to learn more about that. Current professional host, MC, and storyteller. I'm digging that storyteller vibe. I feel like, you know, it's something we all have in common, too. So welcome to the show, ladies. Bella's Table, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So I'm going to kick it off with something I've been spending a lot of time thinking about these last few years. And maybe COVID's had some part of it. Maybe it's just, you know, reaching into my 40s now, being on this entrepreneurial journey for some time. Uh, People always want to lead with their greatest successes. But let's talk about your greatest failures and how they shaped you as a person and a business owner. Um, I find this really rich, fertile soil to have meaningful conversations with my girlfriends and my community. So, you know, Keisha, why don't we start with you? Sure. Um, so in, an, in another life before I was working at Microsoft, um, I was working in publishing. So I could share a little bit from that experience. There was a moment when I was in my 20s and I was working for a really popular magazine at the time, and I was on the retail marketing end, uh, and I wanted to make a transition to go into this brand marketing part of the magazine. And I remember finding a job that I thought was it. You couldn't have told me that it wasn't the most perfect opportunity for me. And I got my resume gussied up, talked to my you know good friends who had some understanding of the industry, and I gave it my all and did not get that job. And I remember being heartbroken. Oh, I I was so just confused because I could see it. I was like, I see the fit. I think this makes a lot of sense. And how old were you? I was probably at 23 at this time. So 23, fresh, just thinking, you know, I, I mostly have had a lot of yeses in my career, I will say. This was a very um, quick note. And my friend, Charles Sims, um, he had been working. He was a good 20 years older than me. I had the good fortune to make a wise friend when I was in my 20s. And I remember Charles said to me, that did seem like a really great opportunity. And I saw it too. And if that wasn't for you, I can't wait to see what is. And that stuck with me so hard because it really reframed my thinking about getting rejected early on. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about whether or not I had tried hard enough or whether or not I had put the right things on the table. It just, there may be something even better fitting for me out there. Um, but that that comment from him really 
I would say it saved me in many ways. Yeah. And, and you don't know what's for you until you try the things that aren't. That part. You're for sure. What a great boon to get that at 23. Yes. Yeah, so it made me approach applying for things with a whole different mindset because there's no right or wrong opportunity. It's more, is this going to be a great opportunity for me? Yeah. What a great shift to think about progress as failing up and not getting mm-hmm. shut down by things you find out aren't for you. And Kim, what about you? How would you answer that question? My entrepreneurial journey has been like rife with failure. I just kind of feel like that's part of the job. Um, But the biggest one that I can think of that for me really showed me the importance of conviction um, was basically the launch of Omsom, my my food brand. Um, We had, Vanessa and I were co-founders. She's my sister. We had been working on the business for probably at least a year, kind of behind the scenes, pre-launch, ramping it up. And the plan was in March of 2020 to launch in May of 2020. As you all know, um, the whole panorama popped off and shelter in place hit New York. And I remember being like, oh, oh my gosh, like, what do we do? And obviously as first time founders, the first thing you do is go talk to your advisors, go talk to your mentors. And every single one of them got back to us and they were like, yeah, like, maybe don't launch. Like we're heading into a recession. The American wallet is shrinking. Like American consumers are just not ready to discover a new brand, particularly one as like loud and unapologetic as OmSom. And that's like really scary to hear when you're, you know, 25, 27, you're like, wait, these people are smart. They've been in the game much longer than me. Like they know what they're talking about. Do they? But Vanessa and I, (laughs) you know, um, But I think Vanessa and I were were like, okay, yes, we hear you, but also like, let's dig into our conviction. And this is, this was kind of an exercise in us trusting our gut of like, we were hearing one thing from these advisors. And then we're also looking at our Instagram feeds, which were full of people growing scallions on their windows and people making sourdough. Like, do y'all remember when everyone was making banana bread? And we were like, wow, this is really interesting where folks are rediscovering the joy of cooking, rediscovering like doing things with their hands. Like why wouldn't an Asian cooking brand make sense right now? Um, and so, yeah, we kind of dug deep and decided to launch and it was the best decision ever. And I'm really, really glad that we didn't listen to those advisors and mentors and instead chose to like trust ourselves, trust our conviction and trust our community. Yeah, no kidding. You're, I, I think the American uh, consumer is excited about global brands and founders like you who are bringing something unique and impassioned and mission driven from their from their from their being. I think that's what consumers are interested in. I'm so glad you followed your gut. What did you learn about listening to your intuition that you didn't know before COVID? I think for me it was a balance of like um science and heart. Like, I think, you know, the science part of it was like, okay, let's look at the data. Like Americans are cooking at home now more than ever. You know, folks aren't going to grocery stores as much. D2C sales are popping off because people are ordering online. Okay. Science. But then a big part of it was heart, which is that like, okay, we know in in particular, the Asian, Asian American community is dying for a brand like ours that centers the Asian American experience is proud and loud about 
being third culture, like we see that and we've been living it honestly as first generation Vietnamese women and daughters of refugees. And then we're also seeing this larger macro movement where non-Asian communities are excited about Asian flavors. Like look at Anthony Bourdain, look at the street food um, programming on Netflix, look at David Chang and Momofuku, like non-Asian folks are ready for Asian flavors and stories. And so it was this kind of tying together of heart and science that led us to that, that led us to really, you know, believe and trust our intuition. It was like intuition followed by data. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. The hero's journey where you let your experience, your wisdom and your intuition lead the way. And I yeah. think, I think, you know, that's, that's the arc of an entrepreneur's journey though, right? It's when you start betting on yourself without second guessing yourself now all of a sudden you're not there's no pull or push right now you're fully confident and planted in who you are and what you're trying to accomplish and it's kind of like the noise disappears right and i find this to be a really privileged place to be in because kim and keisha don't you have to work really hard to get there you have to stand tall and you know go through all the fights go through all the fires to get to that place yeah. And, and I would say the about intuition and, and getting yourself shored up for that fight and for that hard work, people are going to advise you from their place of knowledge and the experiences that they've had and what they think success looks like. And what I have learned is sometimes what actually feels like success to me might look wrong to somebody else because what they think it looks like to do well is not at all what would actually serve my soul, my spirit or my soul. So I really think that being able to look at someone and think about what's the perspective you're coming from when you're giving me the career advice or the work advice that you're giving me. Um, and I'll give an example. Someone might, you know, had told me, you don't need to hire a bookkeeper, for example. You know, you can do that yourself until you have this amount of revenue in your business. They don't know that, look, I'm over here. I'm a single mom. I am juggling a lot. I am also doing a lot of my own social media. I'm doing a lot of my own. I I write everything. There's so many things that I do already myself. You're bringing me this advice because that's the perspective that you have and what you would do if you were in my shoes. However, It's just not going to work for me. I have to be the one who's paying attention to what my life is, what my experience is, what my bandwidth is, what my capacity is, and hear people and what they're saying, but also make sure I'm listening to my own self about what I need to be doing to succeed and trusting, trusting that I know what's best for me because I'm the one living in my shoes every day. Yeah. And tell me what that feels like in two words, to know you're the one living in your shoes every day and you're doing it with intention. Well, I had one word, just ownership. That's right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I own my experience Mm -hmm. of my life. It's Mm -hmm. mine. No one else um, is doing this for me. And I tell people, if you're not your primary caretaker and you don't have one. Mm -hmm. I see you shaking your head, Kim. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, something that I think for me, when I think about this journey is that I rarely feel fully confident in all of my movements. Like being an entrepreneur is actually learning for me anyways, learning how to balance like uncertainty and fear, but balancing that with like conviction in 
sense of self conviction in I'm trying the best that I can, but rarely do I ever feel fully confident. And I think that full confidence as an entrepreneur is like an immense privilege. Um, and I just know that as someone who doesn't come from generational wealth, as someone who's a first time founder, as a queer Southeast Asian woman, like the world was not really made for me. And so it's hard for me to feel fully like this is, this is the path forward, but I'm making steps. I feel proud of myself for that. And like every step forward is not a step backward. And so that, that is kind of how I feel is like that the ownership for me is in the, in the courage that it takes to try, not in like nailing down every, you know, correct move. Yeah. What's that? Uh, is it a Roosevelt quote? Um, Brené Brown says it all the time, but it's something like the credit goes to the man in the ring who's actually trying, not the critic who's watching. Mm, I love Brené Brown. Yeah. All right, girls. I'm going to get very excited here. All right. I have been ruminating on this question and journaling about it for probably two years. And I love asking this question, especially to entrepreneurs. Um, I believe every hero uh, in their own story learns that the straightest path to success is to slay their inner dragons. I'm talking about personal development. When you got to look in the mirror and say, I'm not going to get there until I can slay these inner dragons. And we all have our own stuff, you know, only in, when you look in the mirror, honestly, with the intention of getting to the other side of your stuff, can you truly meet where you need to be to get to the successful place you want in this world? So I want to hear what that means to you and how that has been a part of your journey. Kim, we'll start with you. Ooh, that's a, that's a big boy. <laughs> hmm. The biggest dragon, I guess, in my journey has absolutely been finding pride and power in my identity and actually viewing the, the shame and the othering that I felt as a Vietnamese American woman, as part of my superpower. So basically um, I grew up in a town just south of Boston that was 98% white and grew up with a lot of internalized shame and self-hatred, frankly, for being literally one of like probably five BIPOC kids in the school. And that felt like the most epitomized going into the grocery store where the ethnic aisle still exists where it's this aisle in the center of the store. It's this hodgepodge of ingredients and products from all different kinds of communities of color. Like you have jerk seasoning sitting next to Sazon sitting next to soy sauce. And it just felt like such a reflection of the way that Americans view, not just these foods, but also these communities. And it wasn't until I think I like went to university and kind of became an adult that I started to kind of unpack and process a lot of that shame. And actually at the other end of that, which surprise, surprise coincided with starting my business, starting to feel like really, truly proud of my identity and all parts of it. And I now realize that that journey that both Vanessa and I, my co-founder, my sister and I took in kind of finding that joy again and finding that pride and finding beauty in that, like also came to life in our business. Like Om Som is proud and loud because of us. Like that 
stems from our DNA, truly, like even the name Om Sam originates from the Vietnamese phrase Om Sam, which means like rowdy and rambunctious. And it's actually a negative term of like, like you're OTT, you're being so loud, like, and we just wanted to reclaim that phrase and be like, we're going to give a middle finger to all the frankly shitty tropes about Asian America, the model minority myth of kind of writing this group off as monolithically quiet, submissive and docile, and instead wanted to build a brand that would like give a middle finger to that. And I think, yeah, that for me was the dragon. The dragon was a shame. The dragon was that fear um, of being different or being othered and instead turning it, owning it, reclaiming it and being like, we fully stand on our own, in our own skin, like proudly and loudly. That's super powerful. When you looked your shame in the eye, did you learn that it was coming from things you were telling yourself or was it messages you were getting from your community or your organizations and your, in your, and your cultural storytelling to yourself? I mean, it was white supremacy. Like I like, Ooh, I'm going there. It's like, we grew up in a community. I think that like posited Eurocentric beauty standards to be the norm posited, um, like one right way to be an American. And I like contorted myself for many, many years to fit within a lot of those standards and didn't feel fully myself. And now I think as an adult, I'm realizing, oh my gosh, there's no one right way to be anything. And there are multitudes that exist within Asian America. And I want to build a brand that really celebrates that. Um, And I, I think that's like a common, I think, experience for a lot of kind of folks of color, not just Asian Americans of feeling kind of different or othered. And so, um, you know, I think Amsam is part of a new generation of brands that are really kind of being pretty vocal about like, hey, we can look a million different ways and and there's beauty in that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I internalized a lot of it and probably perpetuated many of those narratives inside my head for sure. Yeah, no, I'm so glad you got, you, you looked at, at it and were able to dismantle it and find your personal power. I remember as a kid being told you're not allowed to go outside in the summer months because you'd get darker. Oh my God. (laughs) And how that impacted me as a woman feeling shame about the way I looked naturally by God, created by God, how I looked. And I had to unpack all of that. And um, I think shame is, we could unpack shame for hours if we wanted to. Keisha, what about you? What's the inner dragon you needed to slay to really see yourself? What's the thing that kept you held back? I think one of the things that I really wrestled with is what is this thing called Black excellence? Um, And this will be probably hitting a lot of the same notes that Kim was talking about because I grew up in the deep South in Louisiana as a dark-skinned Black girl And it was really tough to be in that environment as a child and feel the pressure to overcome so much. There was always the push to make the straight A's. You had to do, well, I would say you, I felt that I needed to do the most to make it. I needed to do the most to get scholarships. I needed to do the most to prove that I could move to the next level. I got so many scholarships in school. I was valedictorian. I was this, I was that. I was all sorts of superlatives. Um, And a lot of that worked out for me in terms of getting a scholarship to go to college serves me today. I didn't have student debt. But over time, learning about 
being celebrated for being the first black this or the first black that and all of these different things and people cheer for you. Oh, that's black excellence. You get a job at a certain kind of company. That's black excellence. So I had to relearn what black excellence really could mean um, because so many of those things that often get celebrated as black excellence are typically moments where we're overcoming some element of white supremacist like structure that's in place. And I had to say to myself, what does black excellence look like when it's not about us fighting white supremacy with, with our bodies and with ourselves as sacrifices? Like, what does the excellence look like? And so that's one of the things that I, I am trying to push back against. Um, when I curate experiences for the benefit of black women and black girls via my platform, another black girl, um, I want to not tell the next generation of young Black people that to be excellent means you have dedicated yourself and your life to overcoming some obstacle that's been put in your way because of white supremacy. I want you to look at us as, what is our culture? What is your soul telling you? What is What do you specifically want for your life that would fulfill you? And that is excellent. What if you want to be a professional jump roper? Like, what if you don't want to be a professional jump roper? What if you just love to jump rope and you're damn good at it? Well, I think that that's pretty excellent. You don't have to be looking at someone in the C-suite of a company and saying, if I go climb that hill and I get that prize, that is Black excellence. So for me, how that looked for me was actually examining my life, examining my choices and deciding what are the things that I do that really fill me up Versus what are the things I do because that's the script. That's the Black excellence script. And yeah. that's been really joy bringing for my life. It's brought me joy, more joy, more peace. Yeah. More to peace. That, mm-hmm. that gave me goosebumps. It deeply resonates with me because I had the same thing growing up. I'm an immigrant. I was born in India. I grew up in, in Vancouver, B.C., huge Indian settling uh, community there. And the thing was always, you know, there's there's not a term Indian excellence, but in the spirit of that, you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to graduate early, you're going to do these things. And in doing that, we're defining you, our children, this next generation, based on a narrative that we are perceiving and didn't create and is not serving who we are. And I think what's really unfortunate about it also is it pits the kid who's just a kid, who's just a human being who wants to grow into his thing, her thing, her essence against an invisible other, you know, instead of it's separating, instead of also, you know, bringing us together. Um, so what would you tell little Keisha today? What would you tell little Keisha today about uh, this concept of black excellence and and how she needs to focus her energy on Keisha and what Keisha is? It's complex because when I look back at so many of the things that I did and they got me to this place, it's hard to say, oh, don't do it that same way, little Keisha, because so much of it did bring me financial security that allows me the privilege to walk away from a corporate job and go be. So there's so much of it that I understand the survival aspect of it in the the capitalistic culture that little Keisha still has to go live in. But what I would also tell her 
in addition to here's how that goes and here's the things you need to do if you want these things, I would also tell her don't let go of the things that really still feel like you. I've been a creative soul since I got here, but I had to put a lot of that away and I had to put a lot of that on a shelf to focus on the things that would get me the security, things that would get me the superlatives that would get me selected for the job, for the this, that, and the third. I would tell her, don't you dare stop writing poetry. Don't you dare stop getting on stages. Don't you dare stop painting. You know you love those things. I would I would implore her to stay connected to the things that really make her happy, even if nobody can see how they're going to make her money, because that's connected truly to what it is that makes your specific soul happy. So it's a little complex, but I know that part for sure. No, all of that resonates deeply. I think, I think, uh, you know, the women that are listening, the men that are listening will understand this because, um, there is this unfortunate narrative of competing against a thing that is squishy. You can't identify, especially as we all bring our own diaspora and our hopes and feeling and trying to heal the trauma of our parents' generation as well. It burdens us in a way that we take uh, maybe more time than is kind to ourselves to settle inside of ourselves. But the, but the thing is, is that when you settle inside of yourself in your spirit, um, that's when the magic really starts to happen. That's anyways, for me, that's when I saw the magic really come alive in my life. I stopped trying so hard and the universe was, you know, to borrow Coelho's words, the universe was conspiring to bring everything together that I wanted for myself in order to accomplish my mission uh, on this earth. Yeah. Um, thank you both for sharing that with such honesty. So um, when did you guys realize that this thing called failure is a perception error? You know, uh, and it's in fact, what we've identified here today is that it's just a series of learning opportunities um, and we've internalized it differently. And so Tell me when you realized, um, and, and Keisha, you touched on this a little bit in the intro, but tell me when, what was your aha moment where you looked back over your shoulder and you said, ah, this connected to this, this connected to that, and it couldn't have happened any other way? I mean, I think my personal life, getting a divorce and the process of uncoupling. You know, people kind of giggle at that word, but that was how it felt. That process of uncoupling taught me a lot because in in our culture, and I'm not sure it's any different anywhere else, but getting a divorce is seen as a failure. Your relationship failed. It didn't work out. Um, but that really taught me, stand in this the way that you think it should go and don't don't I, I had to learn that it wasn't a failure because that relationship had run its course. And for us to try to keep going just to make the, the marriage look like it was still a success, that would have been a real failure. So I said, I was like, let me reframe the anyone's idea or whatever it really means to fail, because I am actually doing something that is true and really needs to happen. So it can't be a failure because it's the right thing to do. And so it just made me have a whole new relationship with that word and really just process that sometimes what looks like a failure is a, is a win. 
And sometimes what looks like a win could feel like a failure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what about you, Kim? Yeah, I, I think it's still a, a lifelong journey for me, honestly. Um, I guess it started to feel a little easier when I started making a conscious effort to reframe away from scarcity and towards abundance. So like, I think my parents, bless them, came to this country, have been grinding and sacrificing endlessly. And I think their goal was always to survive. And I have been tasked with the heavier <laughs> and harder goal, I think, of thriving and not just surviving. And But I still, you know, bear generations of intergenerational trauma. I still bear a lot of my parents kind of like immigrant mentality. And so something that didn't, I often found that things that weren't 100% wins felt like failures. And I think that touches upon a little bit, Keisha, what you were saying earlier, of like Black excellence having to be defined by an external party. And I kind of felt like for me, okay, it wasn't 100% the perfect thing that I wanted. And so therefore it was a failure. And that is such a mindset of scarcity that I feel is very common for a lot of children of immigrants, first and second gen folks, um, where because you know, you're already at a, a different starting point than perhaps like the average white American, like you feel like you have to overcompensate and get perfection to be viewed kind of in that same arena of success. And so when I started to make like conscious efforts away from like, is this my scarcity talking? Am I being, am I scared? And I'm talking to myself right now. Like, what does abundance look like? Abundance would be loving myself. Seeing this as a learning opportunity would be like, hey, this is just not what the universe had in mind for me today. Or, oh, this is going to play out differently down the road. And just honestly, again, conviction in self and trusting that the universe kind of has your back. Um, I'm not religious nor spiritual, but that's kind of how I frame it is like abundance work for me means trusting that the universe has my back. Um, And so part of that is perceived kind of moments of failure. That's part of it as well. Um, So yeah, it's still, it's still hard to like unlearn that little demon. That's like, Ooh, you, you fucked up. (laughs) Um, And it will probably be there forever. Um, So yeah. Yeah. It well for me, it was, um, you know, getting over the hump of, well, these are the circumstances I inherited. And then also at the same time recognizing, well, what a privilege to not have to worry about survival and actually get to forge a path for myself. And yeah, it's heavy in some places. There's generational weight here. Um, But I get the privilege of running my own life. And really, it was me that was my biggest critic in my head the whole time. I was going to say also that I see a lot of things that are, I will say, systemic failures or social things that are set up that are really just hard to overcome that people then take on as personal failures. Yes. You, you, any one of us individual women on this call isn't we're finally going to be the one who topples a really big oppressive system meant to keep women back. And so if you don't succeed at something that it looks like you quote unquote should have been able to succeed at and beat yourself up about it and not realizing like we are chipping away at some really big rocks here and taking on systemic injustices as personal failures is is something that I also was like, let me go sit that down because that's not appropriate for me to try to put on my own back. No, and you're not going to end to that. I will add in, you're not going to get there alone. 
So lean on your community, lean on your network, talk about these things that haunt you inside. Yeah. Um, That's a great point. Um, Okay. I have a question for both of you. It's uh, it's something I uh, realized when I was journaling and um, I journaling has been a great tool for me if you can't tell, but it has been. Um, I want to know when was the moment that you really saw yourself for you for the first time? When did you crystallize to yourself? Um, Kim, want to take a stab at that? (sighs) Again, lifelong journey. Um, It often takes an external moment to be kind of the mirror, I think, for your own growth. Like there wasn't an aha, like, oh, I feel good in my skin. But I do remember... um, Omsom and Vanessa and I were featured in the Wall Street Journal, I think sometime last year. Wow. Which was amazing. And I was like, wow, like, cool. Like this thing that started out as like an idea in my brain, you know, but what was probably the wildest is that, you know, we had an illustrated head cut, you know, the classic Wall Street Journal kind of illustration style. And it's Vanessa and I, and I'm fully looking like me. Like I have my makeup, I'm wearing a big collar, um, it, it, it was like me kind of unapologetically looking like Kim. And I think that was like, oh, wow, I can be like my queer Southeast Asian proud and loud self. And, and we're in a hopefully kind of moment or movement in society and culture where institutions like the Wall Street Journal can see and recognize and like validate my work. And it wasn't so much the point of like acceptance by an institution like the Wall Street Journal that gave me joy. It was the, I did this for myself. Like I chose me fully. I chose like all the things that made me hurt or feel shame for a long time. And, and instead of shying away from them, own them. And there are like little girls or thems looking at the Wall Street Journal and potentially seeing like, oh, you know, this person looks different. Um I never had that. I never had like a queer Southeast Asian woman that I could look up to growing up. Um, And so, you know, representation is a word that I think is thrown around and has kind of lost a little bit of its meaning, but that just felt like such a important moment of reflection for me of like, you did that, Kim, like you chose yourself every step of the way. And, and that's what's kind of leading to this. Yeah. What a great lesson in voting for yourself. And what about you, Keisha? There might be things that I'll see about myself in five years that I couldn't even imagine today. So it is a a lifelong journey. Um, I do remember, though, one of the things at Microsoft that happened that was really powerful for me. They have this this internal show called Outside In, and they sometimes have executives or other marketing employees uh, host it. You know, people come in to bring outside perspective, people who don't work at the company. And Will Smith and Ang Lee were coming. And someone had found out that I did stand-up comedy, which was, that's a whole nother story about confidence and seeing yourself and knowing what you're capable of. But someone in the room who was deciding who would be the corporate person who would sit on a stage with two different personality types, dynamic people, like who's going to sit up here and do this? And they, they found me and what I do <laughs> and asked me to do it. and. I was like, okay, this is kind of like getting thrown into the deep end because it was live in front of an audience. And it was my first time doing the outside in show. So I go out there 
And it felt like the most natural thing in the world to do. It was one of those moments where I knew I loved being on stage. I knew I loved education moments and teaching moments and things like that, but none of it had ever come together in that particular kind of a format, in that kind of moment where I'm interviewing people about their life and about their work and taking into account, what are Microsoft's learning objectives here? What are these two celebrities' objectives here? Because they have a thing to promote. What does the audience need to get? Just all these different factors. And we got to do it live. This is not a, we're not, there's no retakes. (laughs) We're live in front of audience. It was so wild to me that when I finished that, I was just like, I was in my flow. And it was a new feeling that I couldn't unfeel after that. And just really taught me a lot about myself. And so I think it was the type of moment that I got put in a situation I had never been in before, learned something I was capable of, saw how some of the pieces of my my skills or myself that seemed separate before, how they came together in a special, uniquely Keisha moment to hold and make magic with. And after that, I don't think I've been the same since that day. Wow. What a powerful memory. What a powerful memory. Um, thank you for that inspiration, both of you. Um, wow, we we talked about a lot of super cool, meaningful things here today. Uh, this episode about entrepreneurship uh, for women, and particularly for women of color here, we're unpacking those things and the intersectionality of it all. Thank you for bringing your honest experiences, your your vulnerability, and your truth-telling. Um, I'm certainly inspired by both of you, and I know our audience surely will be too. Um, it was a super joy to, to connect with both of you today, and I hope our, our journeys meet again soon. Thank you so much thank for having so us. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, ladies. I'm Bella Sanger, and this podcast was recorded in partnership with Joy Sauce at Cloud Room Studios in Seattle, Washington. Thanks to our audio engineer, Nick Patry, video editor, Matt Flunker, and producer, Chelsea Lynn. For more information, head to joysauce.com.